0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. This month we've been looking at ourselves and the world around us in a brave new light. And in today's podcast, we'll be posing the question, can you ever really know yourself at all? And if you can't know yourself, how can you ever know the people around you, even those closest to you? To debate this question, our panel includes Professor of Contemporary Literature at Royal Holloway, Robert Eaglestone.
2: The fact we're all here today in this room shows that we cannot understand others at all.
1: Psychologist and specialist in the psychology of mind and evolutionary psychology, Nicholas Humphrey.
2: The world you're living in, you do that
3: all the time. You have known yourself since you were born.
1: And Associate Professor of Philosophy at Oxford University, Anita Avramides. So I think that we
4: see other minds just like we say in ordinary language. We see what people think and feel in what they say and what they do. Barry Smith hosts.
5: So, I'm going to ask all of our speakers to set out their views on knowledge of our own minds, knowledge of other minds, and we'll start with
2: Bob Eagleston. Hi, I want to say just uh, three things. So the first thing I want to say is that um, the fact we're all here today in this room shows that we cannot understand others at all, because if we did we wouldn't be here, okay? And uh, it goes with that that we can't even understand ourselves very much. And yet we know that being with others is extremely, terribly, terribly important to us. And that really is the tragedy of our species—the idea that we can't understand others or ourselves very well, and yet we know that being with others is is vitally, vitally important. But the second thing I want to say is that's okay, okay. It's okay in all sorts of ways. It's okay. We can see, for example, this uh, problem. Okay, is where we have art comes from—the highest form of art in the West, the novel. Okay, is profoundly about trying and failing to understand other minds and ourselves. (laughs) We have ethics from it. Ethics, more than just, you know, defending the tribe, is is about uh, reaching out to otherness, Okay, In all those ethical systems, loving your enemies or treating other people not as ends, but uh, treating them as ends, not as means, Okay, Ethics comes from the inability to understand the other. In politics, too, the idea that um, that civilised politics is a sense of not just looking after our tribe or our family, okay, but looking after others. The pluralism that makes up the state or the community is precisely about being with others, okay, even though we don't necessarily understand them. And in terms of the future, the fact we don't understand other people, the fact they are genuinely other, means that in them, in other people, lies what they, the quality that Hannah Arendt calls natality, the of, of of newness being born. If we understood other people, they would be the same as us. There would be no newness. So that we don't understand other people is where newness comes from. That's my second thing. And my third and final thing is to say, isn't it interesting how this debate is uh, being focused around the idea of understanding? We do lots of things for other people. We, we play football with I don't play football with them, but people play football with them or they cook with them or hang out with them or go to the pub with them. And that's not about understanding but that's still being with them in that really important kind of way. So my third point is to wonder whether we're slightly missing the point in even having this conversation and why we're doing that.
4: When we talk of knowing another person, we're talking about something
3: rather peculiar. It's not like knowing the terms tables or knowing the map of Paris or even knowing how your car works and what its foibles might be. Um, human beings are astonishingly complex and incredibly difficult to know. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's certainly true that the human brain is the most complex object in the universe, or probably there are 10 million of them, but those are the 10 million most complex objects in the universe. And yet, we have to understand other people. We couldn't manage without it human evolutionary trajectory has depended on our becoming social beings with the capacity to get inside other people um, and to anticipate and possibly to manipulate what they're going to do next. And equally they're doing the same to us. There's been an arms race in the history of human beings in order to improve the ability to read other people. I've called that ability natural psychology. And I I think indeed that um, because evolution is ingenious, it's uh, natural selection has given us some remarkable techniques, heuristics, we might call them, for getting inside the minds of other people, including literature. Uh, I think you're completely wrong to say that literature is about not understanding. Literature is about introducing understanding to people who didn't understand before. So, uh, and uh, that's one, only one small example. I'll come to some others later about techniques which we've evolved to have. We didn't evolve literature, but we did involve dreaming, for example. Um, techniques which uh, have enabled people to get along at a level which would have been unthinkable if we'd remained at the level of chimpanzees.
4: Right, well, I think I'm going to talk a little bit as a philosopher here, and I'm going to ask the question why we would ever think that the minds of others were profoundly unknowable. After all, it seems to me that we often talk as if we know what others think and feel we say things like the following stop going on can't you see she has a headache or it was obvious that your boss was angry or it was embarrassing your boredom was manifest for all to see these are things we say now it's a real question how seriously we should take ordinary language but I think it's also a serious question how far we should depart from it Mm. so I propose to begin by seeing how far we can take seriously what we ordinarily say. So given that we speak as we do, let's go back to my original question. Why do we have this question before us at all this evening? Why would anyone think that minds were profoundly unknowable? Well, some would think, and some have argued, that the only thing that could lead us to think that was a theory, and indeed, In philosophy, we blame ourselves. We say it's only a philosophical theory that could have led anybody to believe that. And the person that they hold responsible is René Descartes, okay? Descartes famously introduced a mind-body divide. And having done that, he looked outside his window and he saw people walking in the street below, going about their ordinary business. And he asked himself, given he has this mind-body divide, he thinks to himself, how do I know that the figures that I see walking in the street are, I love this term, how do I know they're real men, and not automated machines? Well, that question has stuck for centuries. Centuries of philosophy have ensued, connected in one way or another with that question. So, should we conclude and blame philosophers for the question? Well, I'm not sure philosophers can take all the blame. Any teenager will have asked himself if anyone really understands them. And we all get lost inside our heads from time to time. And I think it's a very short step from that to Descartes' question. So philosophy is engaging with something that I think we all can understand. But I think that Cartesian philosophers and all of us are starting in the wrong place. That is, we all are starting with what sometimes gets called introspection. We look inside ourselves and we think we find our minds laid out in there. And that we think that through this introspection, just by, as it were, turning our gaze inwards, that we get knowledge of our thoughts and feelings. The problem is, I know what I think, but how do I know what you think? All I can see in your case is your behavior. I can't inwardly gaze into your mind. So now we have a problem, and we've got the danger that we're slipping off into a solipsistic universe where only I exist with my thoughts and feelings. This is where we're in philosophy. We're in danger of not getting outside our own heads, just like Descartes. Do we really look inside and find this world ready-made? I don't think so. I think we start with behavior in the world, in connection with others who are like us in important respects. And I think this, invita- this behavior is an invitation to engage for others to engage with us, to teach us, and to help us. And they help us negotiate the world around us and the world inside us. So I think that we see other minds, just like we say in ordinary language. We see what people think and feel in what they say and what they do. Thank you. I'm sure we'll come back to unpick some of that
5: in a moment. I wanted to, to go back to Bob's opening statement, though, because he was suggesting that uh, we don't, we don't really understand other people and that's why we need uh, ethics, politics, why we try to have literature. But I'm wondering whether you're laying a particular stress on understand. I wonder if the standards for that are quite high. I mean, we, we know there are people who have deficits in their mind-reading abilities and at the extreme low end of the autism spectrum, see people, as has once been said, as uh, sacks of skin very scary moving towards them completely unintelligible so that's that's not what you think we're usually doing so is it that you think there's a minimal understanding of human beings as agents as people like us we interact with and then is there something else higher that you feel we're missing?
2: Well aren't we, I mean aren't we talking about knowing? Isn't that, isn't that, the, isn't that the phrase in the, in the title about knowing other beings? Yeah. That, I mean, what, what, is, what is it to know something?
5: Well I'm just wondering whether as we listened to you, we knew what you were offering us. And I certainly had the feeling, and I hope other people did hear, that we knew something of what you thought about well, you this was, topic. You, cer-
2: you were certainly able to, to translate the words that I used, the words that shaped me inside a bit and shape you inside a bit, and you able to use those words to interpret uh, what you thought I was saying, but that's your interpretation of, of the words that I were using. And, and even agreeing over words like we're disagreeing now is quite a hard thing to do. So I'm wor- I mean t-
5: yeah, I, I'm wondering whether there's a sort of scepticism here, which uh, I- is something that maybe Anita's resistant to. Do, do you see a, a, a sort of scepticism creeping in there?
4: First of all, once you start talking about this inside, I sort of wonder what you're talking about. What we have, this world inside sure. of?
2: Sure, talk about inside is a, is a sort of metaphor. It's a, it's a okay. dead metaphor, I agree with that. In fact, our sense of ourselves is extraordinarily intersubjective and extended over all sorts of complicated kinds of uh, fields of discourse and so on. So I, I totally agree with the anti-Cartesian position you were, you were outlining. What I was pressing on was the idea about knowing. Because I think we do lots of things with people all the time. I mean, we do things with people which don't, which don't necessarily involve knowing in any particular complicated kind of way. So, for example, when you're, uh, when you're eating with somebody, okay, you don't have to, to know them in some complicated, scientific, philosophical way before you, before you eat with them, do you? I mean, you're, we do all sorts of things with people without a scientific theory first. That would be really well, weird. Well,
3: I just don't agree. I, look, supposing you're, s- you're sitting at a table with somebody and there's some exotic item on the table which you've never tasted, and you see someone putting it in their mouths. In that sense, you're rather blind to what it's like for them to be there. On the other hand, if they just take a strawberry and put some cream on it and put that into their them as, in very, some very important sense, you know what it's like to eat a strawberry. Um, there's no problem about that. I mean, you could be wrong about it, of course, but the chances are that what it's like for you
2: is what it's like for them. And since you know what it's like for you, you know what it's like but, for them. But, but my, my point is that that, that that thought is, as it were, a secondary thought. I mean, that's a sort of uh, a epistemological, scientific-y kind of thought about what people do without, without having to evoke that sort of... I, I mean, I just don't agree about that. I think,
3: I think we see these things just in the sense, Anita said, you know, just as when I see you looking over to the window, let's say, and I know what it's like to see. I don't, well, I don't have to go through any complicated theorising about that. I immediately attribute sight to you because I know
2: how eyes and brains work together to, to get there. But um, do, but do you, a, or do you say I attribute sight and see him looking at the window or do you just see me looking at the window? You,
3: you see, well, you see him looking window and then you ask, what is he seeing? And we know that experiments on children and so on know that another child sitting here could guess what you were seeing from a different perspective, for example. But come on, let me come back to something which I profoundly disagree with you both about. You're worth agreeing about the fact that there's no sort of inner theatre. There's Inside, nothing, yes, nothing, no, nothing, nothing in, in there which we can appeal to as evidence of how our minds work. <laughs> What world are you living in? You do that all the time. You have known yourself since you were born, since you first felt pain, since you first felt hungry, since you first discovered that you could move your limbs and so on. And those were the um, astonishing discoveries for you at that point. This is what it's like to be me. But very soon, you extend your knowledge to others around you because you find out that attributing those very feelings and experiences to other people works. If I know what it's like to to, to eat... uh, 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 Cauliflower, let's say, and I hate it. I kind of I find myself attributing that to someone else. And that's not an accident. Can I just say this? This is, has been nature's trick. I've talked about in my own writings about the evolution of an inner eye, which is very close to being an organ of sense. This isn't just a metaphor. We have laid out in our heads a structure of our, how our minds work, highly. Made highly relevant to what we want to know. It's not we're not looking at our brains. We're looking at our minds. So who's who's
5: looking at this uh, at I this am. picture? I mean, and and what's the eye that's looking? Oh, that's there.
3: It's it's whoever's in control of my language and my behaviour and my will. It's a you know there's a central uh, intelligence inside me who which actually acts on my behalf. It has access to this knowledge.
5: Let me bring in Anita on that.
4: I. I think I profoundly disagree that the child, the infant, looks inwards and discovers what it's like to experience emotions and sensations and the like. I think the child behaves in the world as perhaps in response to what's going on inside them, but has no way of understanding or talking or thinking about that. And that it's only in interaction with its caregiver, its mother, that it comes to to understand what's happening inside it. I don't know about anybody else, but I find that my inner world is just not as clear as some other people think theirs is. And I find that I'm constantly trying to figure out what I think, what I feel, how I feel, what my emotions are, and other people are helping me to do that, both by identifying the objects of these emotions and also by helping me to identify what's going on so-called inside me, it's just a metaphor.
5: So Anita, I I think those may ring bells with a lot of people, but is there some sense in which we do have uh, unique or special or privileged access to our own minds, and, and what does that consist in?
4: Okay. The really hard thing is how you reconcile the fact that we have an inner life and that our behavior communicates to others. So we're profoundly connected with others and we're profoundly solitary. I think these things have to be understood. We've got an inner and an outer. The, the wrong thing is to think that somehow they're not connected, that inside there's my mind and then there's this behavior which is like a bridge to other people and you kind of look at that behaviour and you figure out what I'm thinking. Now, I think it's mo- that's why I think that mind-body problem that Descartes bequeathed us is where it all goes wrong. Mind and body are much more intermingled than that. And but doesn't that make
5: knowledge of our own minds rather difficult? Because we don't know our own minds by observing our own behaviour, or, or at least we don't always do it that way.
4: Some people think we do, actually.
5: Gilbert Ryle. <laughs> exactly. so, so tell yeah. us what Gilbert Ryle thought. Well,
4: look, it's not that... Again, what we're trying to do is figure out how we can bridge the gap from this so-called mind to the behavior. We don't want to collapse it all into just behavior. Those were the behaviorists who said, you know what? There's nothing going on inside the system. It's just the behavior. Well, that can't be right. Then we go sort of way inside and we think, you know what? It's all just this hidden ghostly place inside our minds. And I only know it. It's private. I can see it. You can't. That's a problem. We've got to bridge this. We've got somehow to connect the mind back to the world. Yeah, I mean Very quickly, and I then don't I want think to bring these, Bob ab-
3: these issues are just you know uh, open for philosophical discussion without any evidence. Al- developmental psychologists have been working on these issues for you know hundred years or more, and some really interesting com- evidence coming out of that about how, for example, children first engaged in contagious empathy. So if they see another kid crying, they themselves begin to feel sad. And through that, I think, they learn the connection between another child crying and what, it's like and, and what the child might be feeling. Happiness is equally contagious. Um, and we now begin to know how this is working at a neurophysiological level. There are these wonderful neurons, many of you will have heard of them, in the premotor cortex called mirror neurons. They were discovered in monkeys when they were, it was found that if a monkey <laughs> sees somebody performing an action the cells in its own cortex which would have performed the same action if it was making it begin to fire away but the really interesting thing is that it's now been discovered in humans that for example if i see somebody else in pain pain neurons in my uh, insula also begin to function in, i mean in, interesting facts are beginning it's to so
2: do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers it's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
5: So, so, so both of you both of you are, are talking about sort of deep interconnection between knowing our own minds and knowing others, but given that Bob was pushing the case for not having knowledge or not having real understanding of other people, the extent to which you have understanding of yourself or the way in which you know yourself, I mean, you're elaborating lots of views about what other people are up to and what they're making of you at times. Um, what does that consist in for you? How are we doing that? What are the materials on the inside for doing that as you see them?
2: Well, I, I, mean, I think this conversation is extremely interesting because it's, it's clear, isn't it, that, that our, our sense of ourself is shaped as much by our behaviours in the outside world as by anything inside. And, because of our, our, and I agree also that the inside-outside metaphor that... that Although you were decrying it, you were still finding it very hard to get away from. Instead of being like a, a balloon with something inside and some air inside and a, a surface and outside, we're much more like a current in the sea, which is sort of a movement, which is part and not part. If you see what I mean, and that seems a trying way of trying to think about it without using the inside-outside metaphor. Um, which allows us to think about exactly these things, about the way in which we, we learn to understand ourselves from all sorts of outside influences, from culture and, and from so on. And, and, we, and we all have that experience, don't we? we I, there are two different examples. It's, like, it's the same thing. One is in Proust and one is from Sweet Home, Alabama, uh, a very bad film, OK? So he, in the film, he's jilted at the auto and he goes, oh, that's what this feels like. And then uh, Proust has a very long, 100-page long thing, which is exactly the same thing as that. Uh, but it's that sense of, of we feel things that we, we're sort of shaped towards by the world outside in a really complicated way which we haven't yet got a full grasp on. Okay. And that's why we're here. We, if, we, if we knew what each other thought, then nobody would be here because we wouldn't need to have this sort of conversation. There's famous work by Haider, which I'm sure some
3: people know here, where you show an extraordinarily simple cartoon of a triangle and a circle uh, playing around inside a box with a possible door, I'm mean going to call it open, and everybody immediately sees this as a, uh, an interaction between animate, sentient agents who are, uh, one wants to do something, the other one's trying to stop him doing that. Oh, uh, right, he's escaped and now she's pleased and whatever it may be. Inter- interestingly enough, uh, autistic kids find this extremely difficult to do. Um, it's actually a rather important test for, for autism now that they can't solve these cartoon problems. My view is, uh, Again, that it's it's not quite like causality, for example. I mean, I think human, in the shop for that matter, psychologists were probably right that that's just a primitive Mm -hmm. perception. We don't have to know anything about having been caused ourselves, having caused things to see causality when one thing bangs into another and the other one moves off. But um, my guess would be, uh, it's of course, it's, it's difficult to get at this level, but even things like intentionality are things we first discover in ourselves. The difference between willed, events and unwilled events so when we see something apparently acting autonomously even if it's a cartoon we understand what it is to be autonomous because we understand what it is to desire things and act on that basis and rather than being pushed around but i guess it comes straight it always comes back to our own experience so
5: so so is this a worry for you anita that we see agency (laughs) in places where there are no minds
4: i think the fact that the that children (coughs) respond to those little circles and squares and triangles in that way, for me, shows that there's a real importance that we understand that the world of objects like tables and chairs and rocks and trees is different from the world of animate beings like ourselves. So it's incredibly important. And, and if, we s- if we continue with that, now maybe this isn't what you have in mind, but there are lots of people, again, when they're thinking about the mind as inner, when they're saying how we know it is by some kind of inference to the best explanation of their behavior, or we're positing a theory about what's going on over there, what seems to me so wrong is they're thinking of this, explicitly so in many philosophical accounts, as like science. It seems to me that that's absolutely wrong, about people that model that it's just some explanation that's in there and it's hidden and we just need to figure it out. And the reason is because it's too important. That's why I think the infant responds to these cartoons. Animacy, the fact that this is a minded individual and not an inanimate object is too important. And that very idea for me is why the idea that it's a theory that it's some kind, something hidden inside another, and we need a theory to get at it, has to be the wrong way. Well, many people know the,
3: the philosophers, but not so much psychologists anymore, have distinguished so-called simulations mm-hmm. and theories of mind. Um, and uh, I think most people are now converging, especially as a result of the work of mirror neurons, on the idea that what we generally do in trying to understand someone else is to put ourselves in their place. In other words, we say, what would it be like and what would I do if I were you? Um, that's, so that's not theorizing. That's, that's just simply, you know, I try it out. I'll, I'll, I'll put myself there and imagine I was in, I was in your place. It's an astonishingly a good way of understanding other creatures.
5: Um, and, and- And it's also interesting to note, of course, that the the triangle being chased by or pursued by the square Mm -hmm. was created by animate human beings. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you had to set it up pretty nicely to get the effect. But, but Bob, I'm wondering whether you're not um, closer to Nick and more diametrically opposed to Anita here because insofar as people are uh, puzzling and you want to work them out, novelists are, when good, good psychologists. They're, They're actually trying to think very hard about... What, what bits of evidence, what bits of behaviour, what, 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 what clues there might be about what's going on and so on. So aren't you uh, uh, thinking that you're a kind of crypto theorist about other people?
2: Well, I, I, I've been very struck by this conversation about, about circles and squares and so on and uh, other minds and, and being offered cups of coffee. But it strikes me that that's uh, one of the things that we're all quite aware of is how very often that goes wrong and how very often do you want a cup of coffee, means all sorts of things that have nothing to do with coffee altogether. And I can't help thinking that perhaps in terms of if we're thinking about how we actually do things in the world and negotiate the world, we actually start with the not knowing rather than with the, the knowing. You know, does does she fancy me? Does he fancy me? Why is he offering me coffee so much? What's going on? Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. The, so, so That's, these, that's these do you want to come things? in for a cup of coffee? So and it seems to me that uh, one of the things that novelists do is, is precisely around exactly that, the not knowingness of things. One history of the novel begins with uh, Don Quixote. And Don Quixote is about a man who's read so many romances about being a knight, is that he thinks he is a knight and goes away and mistakes windmills for giants and all, and all that sort of stuff. And that's about exactly a, the getting things wrong and, and, and a, a real concern about the getting wronginess of what's going on inside of other people. But look, but take the, Sorry, when. Okay, that's a,
3: an example where you say it goes wrong. Supposing you're talking about Dostoevsky and Prince Mishkin, for example. Do you believe. Dostoevsky's account, not believe it, are you impressed by his account of what it's like to have an epileptic fit and what the extraordinary inner change which goes on in him when that occurs? And don't you believe it because he'd been there? <laughs> this is the sense he was using his own experience acquired through his own inner eye in order to help us to understand what it's like to be somebody in that situation. I, not all novelists proceed, proceed like that, of course, but there's a very honourable tradition of uh, David Copperfield, I think you mentioned, uh, you know, of Dickens, using his own experience most explicitly
2: in order to uh, help paint the story of these people. But then if you take uh, David Copperfield or Brothers Karamazov or something, mm-hmm. lots of those are about complete inability to understand what's going on. David Copperfield, you know, falling totally in love with uh, the wrong woman and all being a disaster and him not being able to understand exactly what's going on. So, so I, I mean, I think... But, I but doesn't Dickens help us to understand that stage? But then, to but then the t- put the sort of reportage to one side for a second, the way that the... the those very uh, sophisticated forms of novels work, are precisely playing on the what you you know, what you don't know, the attempt to understand and and the inability. And then sometimes the novelist will give that to you. We all want to know if he fancies me. And sometimes the novelist will say, and I looked inside her mind and she did love him, hooray. But very often they won't give you that. And when they do give you that, it's a sort of uh, illusional joy. The reader, I married him. But in fact, we all know in our, in our normal lives it's the not understanding what the human <laughs> beings do, perhaps not with circles and squares, but in all that part of life that's so important, okay, that is exactly what the novelist is, is struggling with the, the ability, the inability to do that. And that's why it's a sort of a, a complicated paradox. And that's why I don't think that the, that claim for novels, that they are create, increase empathy and so on, works. If it does work, it doesn't work in that kind of way. I think what it, it might work, is exactly, bizarrely in the other kind of way, that it draws attention to our inability to understand other people. So Proust, for example, 3000 pages, you know, trying to explain how he wanted to become a writer. And it's full of uh, incredible revelations about the characters and you had no idea this was going on. And it's, it's all about the, in, the inability to understand other people.
5: So reading novels make, might make us understand people less and maybe even empathise less with other people.
2: It makes, I think it makes us understand the, the uh, astonishing opacity of other people. OK. So, so,
5: so maybe just as we have language as a means of um, sharing what we're thinking, going public on what we're thinking, can language also be a way of concealing our thoughts, Anita, and, and disguising us from who we are or maybe from disguising from others who we are?
4: The problem with telepathy is it may seem like it's a great solution, but in fact, you wouldn't actually be coming to know another mind. If you think about it, if I could know exactly what you were thinking and feeling, then I'd be you. (laughs) Um, You wouldn't be you, I'd be you. Where do you end and I begin? So that's where I think that we are both inner and outer, we are separate selves. <laughs> we're not one mind and we cannot know other minds completely. But we can know them to some extent. And the, the question then is exactly how we manage that. That's the sort of question that we're all grappling with. How do we manage it? But there's no doubt that we do. And is it a good thing? Well, maybe for all the reasons I tra- good or bad, it's the way it is. Right? We are both public and private and I am not you.
5: There's also maybe a a sense in which even if we were to go down the road with Bob and and, uh, think that we couldn't have that capacity to know other minds, it might be still quite important to believe we do at times or or to, to feel as though we do. And so when a lover gazes into their partner's eyes and they say, do you feel it too? And the other says, yes. Of course that's rubbish, but, but isn't it good <laughs> that they say that? Isn't
2: it quite important that they say that? Yeah, of, co- of, co- of course people have to, people uh, learn all sorts, of, all sorts of responses, don't they? And that's part of, of, of how, we, how we are together. You know? yeah, and I
3: mean, s- sex and love is of course an extraordinary interesting example because of the ambition we have in making love to no. know the other person, to merge with them in some yes. sense. And was that f- famous translation by Dryden of Lucretius's about lovers uh, doing everything they can to get inside each other and yet they always remain separate. Yeats said that that was the finest commentary on uh, on sexual intercourse ever written, what it proved was the uh, perpetual virginity of the soul.
1: (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this podcast which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas, So what do you think? Is your soul still in its virginity? Let us know by tweeting at iai underscore tv with the hashtag philosophy for our time.